0: Welcome to 4D, Deep Dive into Degenerative Diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, Deep Dive into Degenerative Diseases, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT, Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Padgett, a physical therapist, and Secretary of the DD-SIG. And for this episode, we have Dr. Lori Quinn with us. Lori is an Associate Professor in Movement Sciences and Kinesiology and Director of the Neurorehabilitation Research Laboratory at Teachers College, Columbia University. So Lori, I'd like to welcome you and have you introduce yourself a little more.
1: Hi, Parm. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah, so I am currently at Teachers College. Uh, I actually always like to say that I've come full circle because I finished my doctorate at Teachers College over 20 years ago, and I've been lucky enough to be back here and working as a full time faculty member. So, a bit about me I uh, finished my doctorate in motor learning and motor control. I was lucky enough to be here when Anne Gentile was here. So I really uh, learned from her and was mentored by her as well as some of the other faculty. And I went on to work at New York Medical College uh, with Jim Gordon. who was another really important mentor for me in sort of the late 90s and early 2000s. And then at that time, I moved in 2003 to um, England. So I spent 11 years living in London And for seven of those, I worked um, at Cardiff University, where I did a lot of work in Huntington's disease, and we worked on a lot of clinical trials. And then I moved back to the U.S. in 2014 and took my position here at Teachers College in 2015. And my work here now is mainly involved in teaching, motor learning, motor control to master's and doctoral students. And in doing research. And so we do research with people primarily with Huntington's disease and Parkinson's disease, a little bit in stroke and some other areas, but mainly looking at physical activity and exercise interventions that can help benefit people.
0: All right. And you still have some relationship with Carniff University in the UK?
1: I do. Yes. I am a senior research fellow there now, mm-hmm. uh, which I've kept... A really good collaboration with the team there. I work actually as part of a trials unit, and I work very closely with a physical therapist, Monica Bassa, who's uh, one of the directors of the Mm -hmm. clinical trials unit there. Yeah, so that's been a fantastic relationship.
0: Yeah, I think it's so cool to talk to people that work here, but also in other places, particularly Europe, because it's just kind of fun. Like, hopefully, you get to go back and forth a little bit and
1: I do. I use every excuse I can get to go back and forth. And I think a big part for me in living overseas was... So London in particular is a really international city. So I got to meet people from from all over and especially all over Europe. And a big part of what my job was there was to help run some of the clinical trials that we had in Huntington's. And because it's a relatively rare disease... We had to get, let's say, six or seven patients from different centers. So I would be not just traveling all over the UK, but at times traveling into Europe and doing site monitoring and doing training. And we also had a group of physical therapists that formed a working group that was involved in Huntington's disease. There was a European Huntington's Disease Network. And I got to meet therapists from. Sweden and Germany and Spain and the Netherlands. And there is a lot we can learn from therapists who are operating in different countries under different healthcare systems. It's just incredible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So you just mentioned that Huntington's disease is a rare disorder. So I feel like even for many of us practicing in clinical settings, we see People with all different kinds of neurologic disorder. And then, you know, when you get to see the people with Huntington's, it's not that often. So I feel like for a lot of clinicians to kind of keep up their skills with that specific diagnostic group of people or um, to sort of maintain a certain proficiency in understanding the typical impairments and deficits is is tricky because you just don't see it enough to sort of develop that pattern recognition. So I'm wondering if we could start super basic and you could just sort of quickly review for us the biggest types of deficits that we see in people with Huntington's disease.
1: Mm, That's a great question. So Huntington's is a neurodegenerative disease that has a bit of a shorter lifespan typically than something like Parkinson's disease. So another thing to kind of keep in mind is how things can maybe change more quickly than in some other diseases. But some of the key, the key ways we think about the motor impairments in HD is thinking about uh, the voluntary motor impairments and the involuntary motor impairments. So Huntington's disease was actually once called Huntington's chorea because it was thought to be the mainstay, one of the main aspect of the disease. But in fact, not everyone gets chorea or gets a chorea of the same severity. And chorea is actually not well associated with functional impairments in Huntington's disease the voluntary motor impairments are better associated with functional problems in Huntington. So you will see chorea, which is the involuntary um, movements. You will also see dystonia, which is sort of the sustained posturing, which causes a lot of muscle imbalances that we see in, in patients. But then on the voluntary side, which again is more closely associated with functional problems, I uh, will see bradykinesia, even though it, often doesn't look like people are moving slowly. There is an inherent um, bradykinesia that you'll, that you'll see. We'll see motor and persistence. And you will often see weakness, but we think weakness is a secondary impairment that we see. It's not really clear if weakness per se Is a primary problem, but you will also see similar to that. You'll see force modulation problems. So um, it's a lot of you know difficulty with sort of modulating the force that's appropriate for the task. So people will sort of propulse up out of a chair and sort of almost jump out of it, or or fall back into a chair, or go to reach for something and overreach for it. So it's not so much that they're weak or even uncoordinated, but they just have difficulty modulating the forces appropriate for the task.
0: Okay. So you used the term motor impersistence. What do you mean by that?
1: Motor impersistence is having difficulty sustaining a muscle contraction or a, a motor task. So one of the ways this is measured clinically is asking a patient to stick their tongue out and hold it out for 10 seconds. And what you'll see in patients with Huntington's disease even pretty early in the disease is they'll hold it out for maybe three to five seconds. And then they just can't sustain that contraction and they pull their tongue back in. You know, clinical example, would be asking them to do a a manual muscle test potentially where you're having them hold their contraction and they're just not able to do it. They're able to hold it for a couple of seconds and then they release.
0: Okay. And so that's different than sort of that motor modulation where um, the motor modulation is more of something that is initiated, but they
1: they don't scale the force appropriately to the uh-huh. task at hand. Yeah, so it's a scaling issue versus a sustainability issue. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: okay. And then, of course, resulting from those problems are the types of issues that we tend to try to address in people with Huntington's, which is this like secondary weakness and then balance problems.
1: Mm-hmm. Balance. Yeah, balance. We tend to think of as a primary impairment, right? But definitely range of motion and strength, yeah, mm-hmm. are secondary impairments. Yeah,
0: okay. Um, I know that when I've seen people with Huntington's, and it hasn't been a ton of people, but when I have seen them, you know, we focus a lot on balance because that seems to be where they're having issues. They're trying to continue moving in safe ways, but then also sometimes things like bed mobility seem to be tough as the disease progresses.
1: Yeah, you'll you'll have a progression of functional impairments that in many ways, and as I always try to talk about this, in many ways, it's not too dissimilar to what you see in many other neurodegenerative diseases, MS, Parkinson's disease. And what I try to tell therapists is to, you know, evaluate the patient that is in front of you, certainly have an idea about the Huntington's disease, but not really trying to see the forest through the trees a little bit, that there's some really common impairments that cut across a lot of neurodegenerative diseases that are common in people with Huntington's disease. And I think some of those same interventions can apply. And, and balance is a really good example of that.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think the bradykinesia too, because they don't seem like they're bradykinetic, but when they're doing that more voluntary type movement, they're, they're overall slow, getting it done.
1: I would say, though, that the force modulation and the motor and persistence and the postural control impairments are probably the biggest factors that contribute to their functional problems. And so if you're going to address something, those would be the top ones that I would address. And. We try to use a lot of task-specific training, not so much. We do do some strengthening for sure because, again, they're having these secondary impairments, but a lot of task-specific training and a lot of balance retraining, and again, in a typical way that you would with, with other patients, and it can be really effective.
0: Mm-hmm. And so to switch gears a little bit, what about just general physical activity and exercise? We're, we're hearing a lot about how those help in other um neurodegenerative diseases particularly parkinsons and ms and so i'm wondering about in hd do people have the same sort of benefits from you know fairly vigorous or or even just regular exercise
1: yeah so we actually took a turn in our research maybe about you know 7 or so years ago in really thinking about the same thing of maybe where not going to focus so much on the exact disease specific impairments, but what if it 's just really important to get people to be more mobile, more physically active in their home environments? I think a big thing with hD and with other rare diseases is the limited access to physical therapists. I think it comes i might be getting i might be very off topic, but it might comes from a couple of different reasons is that one doctors aren't often referring early enough. We're really trying to educate about that. And then two people are just from a really wide area. So even in a really populated area like New York City, the therapists, you know, where I work won't even see a lot of our patients. There's just not that many. And a lot of them live, you know, two hours away. They come from quite far to be able to come. So, you know, a big focus of our research started to become, well, can we just try to promote physical activity and sort of this active lifestyle, as well as thinking about the benefits of aerobic exercise, which is something that can relatively easily be done in the community or in the, in the home. So we have a study going on right now that was based on a study that we completed a few years ago called engage HD, Mm -hmm. where we went into people's homes for six sessions over the course of four months and we worked with individuals on engaging in physical activity and exercise within their home environment, and that intervention was really successful. And we have taken that and modified it, and we're used. We're um, in the midst of a clinical trial right now called Pace HD, mm-hmm. which is a six-site study across three countries that has recruited almost 120 people with Huntington's disease and. Wow. Part of that is a clinical trial that is a 12-month intervention in people with Huntington's disease, where physical therapists see the patients for 18 sessions over a 12-month period, again, with the focus of increasing physical activity and exercise uptake in their environment and in their community. And so people can get exercise bikes in their homes, they can get gym memberships, that's part of what the funding is has enabled us to do. And the physical therapist monitors them, updates their exercise regime, progresses them, but does that over a year period, which is a little bit, I think, of a different model for healthcare delivery and one that I think could be really beneficial and useful in other diseases as well.
0: Right. Yeah, we, we have talked about that a little bit on the podcast. And we to wholeheartedly agree. I mean, when we're seeing people with neurodegenerative diseases, we we need to get beyond episodic care and, you know, continue to follow them and help them because the disease will progress. And particularly, I would think something like HD that's a little bit faster progressing. You know, I like this model of sort of keeping track of them over that 12 months. So what outcomes are you looking at specifically in that trial in the PACE HD trial?
1: So there's a lot of outcomes in this trial, but the main outcome that we're looking at is physical fitness. So we have patients do a bike test. So they're doing a predicted VO2 max test on a cycle ergometer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the main outcome. We are also doing physical activity. So looking at wearable devices called gene active devices, which are somewhat similar to Actigraphs, but they're more commonly used in the UK. So we're using these to measure moderate to rigorous physical activity, amount of time spent in sedentary, steps, number of steps, as well as sleep. So those are some important variables. And then we have your standard measures. So we're looking at the timed up and go, and we have the six-minute walk and those kind of things. And the other neat thing about this study is that we're linked in with the Enroll HD study, which is a registry study. Mm-hmm. So people will also be able to have access to all of the data that's normally collected on patients annually. So we've timed our baseline assessments with their baseline enroll assessments so we have all the disease specific measures without having to test them again.
0: Oh, that's neat.
1: Yeah. So that's cognition and other things that we could be looking at as well.
0: So cog- and cognition is a piece of what you're what you'll be looking at, right? And that
1: It is. Yeah. And it's a really important piece in Huntington's, you know, HD has, you know, a motor impairment, but the cognitive and the behavioral impairments are just as significant, if not more significant, and the interaction between the three. So a big part of what the therapists who are working on the trial are, you know, dealing with and working on is some of the cognitive impairments and how they might impact engagement and exercise and behavioral as well. So it's a complex disease for sure.
0: Yeah. I think that as we sort of grow and develop and start to get more and more into behavior change and really working on that with our patients. We kind of need some psychology skills in our toolbox, which can be tricky. Yeah, I think some people can gravitate toward that a little bit more naturally, and then other people really have to work on it. Yeah. It's certainly something to consider with this population.
1: It it is. Part of our training manual has a whole section on the cognitive impairments in HD and specific strategies to help with redirection as an example, you know, and dealing with sometimes people have obsessive compulsive behaviors and how to redirect with that. But another thing that makes me think of about the psychological components is we've been using intervention is underpinned in self-determination theory. So I don't know if that's something that you. I've talked about but just this concept of promoting autonomy, relatedness, and confidence, which you know, some, some concepts of motivation motivational interviewing are related to that, but mm-hmm. really listening to the to the patients or the participants, understanding what their perspectives are, building their confidence that they can help to self-manage their disease. That's also I think a big part of what we need to be doing in degenerative diseases as well, is building <laughs> that that competence.
0: Right. So, when you're seeing people, you said 18 visits over 12 months, are you front loading and then sort of?
1: A little bit of front loading, yeah, a little, a little bit. So, the first month, they see them three times. And then the next few months, they see them a couple times a month. And then it's once a month as they get towards the end.
0: And then, you know, to, from a clinical perspective, how do you imagine continuing to follow up?
1: See, in HD, I would love to have this be the continual model of care. I mean, 18 sessions over a year period is well within the typical number of sessions that we would see somebody for an episode of care. Mm-hmm. So I I would love to change the the policy around this or the you know the, the healthcare policy around this that we could continually see patients. It might be that they would need to come in for an episode of care that was more condensed in the time period. So we certainly recognize, and this is happening in the trial, that patients, let's say, have pain with something that's not directly related to what the intervention is supposed to be in the trial. And we kind of are referring them out for episodes of physical therapy, you know, in a more condensed time period. So I think that would be completely reasonable, but I think it's something like HD. I mean, maybe they don't have to see a physical therapist every month, but I mean, we'll see how the results of this study come out. I think it's it's a really beneficial check-in, especially for people who have cognitive impairments, whose motor impairments can change somewhat frequently. I think it's really important for us to be monitoring them, and I'd uh, you know I'd like us to you know kind of think outside of the box about how we could deliver the same number of sessions in a different way.
0: Yeah. So, so you're thinking something like basically a monthly check in, yeah? Ideally, going forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: it might not need to be monthly. I mean, that's what we're doing in this trial, and right. I'm, I'm going to be curious as to what the therapist at the end. You know, we're doing interviews with the therapist afterwards, how they feel about it, and how the, how the patients feel. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we've dealt with in previous trials, which I've absolutely hated, is we would do a 12 week intervention. We did this one study. Where we did a 12 week intervention, three times a week, uh, we did an exercise bike and strengthening programs, and it was a really successful intervention. But then at the end of the 12 weeks, you know, we said to say goodbye to the patients, and they were some of them were really devastated. Yeah, and
0: I mean, you feel like you're dropping them like a hot potato.
1: You are. You are dropping them like a hot potato. It's horrible, and we could, and some of them we couldn't get into therapy and. Oh, it was just, it was really horrible. I mean, look, I think we do need that intensity sometimes, especially with some kinds of balance training and to get at some, you know, real changes with um, task training. We might need that level of intensity, but overall, I think we need to be going towards a a model where we're seeing them over a longer period of time.
0: Right. I mean, I know I I can think of one patient that I had that I was sort of seeing like that, like you know, we got some stuff dealt with and then they were just kind of coming back pretty much once a month. And every time it was like a new issue and we would, you know, work on a solution to that issue. And then the next time they can come back, they'd be like, oh yeah, that's working well, but now we have this problem. So it is interesting that it does kind of change pretty quickly. I think that's different different than what we're used to when we're dealing with people with other neurodegenerative diseases.
1: Yes, I think, I think you're right. But I think the other thing, HD or otherwise, is this aspect of prevention. You know, we really have a very good idea in many neurodegenerative diseases about the course of these diseases and what are potential impairments and functional limitations that are likely to be coming down the road. And we have indicators of what might uh, cause problems later on, whether it's, you know, from, from our movement analysis certain. Um, habits or certain patterns of movement to specific impairments that we might be testing and looking at those in a preventative way saying, aha, I see this, you know, muscle asymmetry, you know, evolving, let's deal with this now before it becomes a major issue. And you can only get that when you're seeing patients more frequently. And I think that frequency probably depends on the time course of the disease.
0: Yeah. And, And I also feel like you can only see it when you know the patient. You know, when patients end up like going to one therapist for an episode of care and then they come back, even if it's the same clinic, then they see somebody different or they bounce around to different therapists. Sometimes that can be tricky. And some practices like to have that kind of flexibility, but I think often at the patient's detriment. Yeah. So a question I always like to ask people is, what do you recommend for outcome measures in this population?
1: Uh, It's funny. I just gave a talk on this and I said, there's no... PT edge in Huntington's disease. So we right. figure this out ourselves. I am going to be honest and say, I wish I had a really good answer is something we are continuing to work on and think about. So right now, my best guess would be the timed up and go a 32nd chair stand test and a six minute walk. hmm a big project we're working on right now and trying to get underway is a balance assessments in Huntington. So Mm -hmm. we have a couple of sites who are pulling together unfunded to try to look at different balance measures in HD because we've tried the Berg. It's not very good. The Tenevi just doesn't capture the problems. So we're looking at about six different tests right now and we're going to try them across a whole bunch of patients, across a whole range of uh, disease progression. And we might be coming up with a new scale. We might be taking components of these scales and developing a new scale. Mm-hmm. Some of the items from the Berg that are just fail-safes for me, where I will almost always see a problem is certainly tandem stance. Just, you know, standing on one foot, standing with eyes closed. Those will always produce some of the balance problems that you see. hmm People have a lot of difficulty walking up and down stairs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think doing a stairs assessment is important as well.
0: It's tricky, right? Because there's not a lot of studies and the studies that do exist are, are variable and there's, there's not a big population. So the number of people in the studies is just hard, I'm sure, for researchers to ha- have high ends, you know, in their studies.
1: And that's why we collaborate together. So there's, I had mentioned earlier about the group in Europe that was a physiotherapy working group. We also have a rehabilitation working group. That's part of the Huntington study group, which is a U.S. based organization. And so there's a group of us that have gotten together and, you know, if we all do, you know, 10 to 20 participants in each of our sites, then then we can get the numbers that we need to for most studies. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what we've been trying to do, but balance I think is top on everyone's list because even I haven't done an intervention study that looks at balance and any of the exercise interventions that we've done, haven't had an improvement in balance. I wouldn't have necessarily thought that they would have, but it was one of the first things that you mentioned. Right. Right. We're kind of neglecting it. So we need to, we need to pay attention to this.
0: Yeah. And why do you think that is?
1: Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we, You know, we did do one study, um, which was a task-specific training where uh, it was published in Physical Therapy Journal in 2014, and it was actually a negative trial where we didn't show any improvements in any of the outcome measures, which was a little bit devastating for me because I have, I I feel very strongly about how important task-specific training is, and it's something I do (laughs) with my patients all the time, and I couldn't believe I did a Beautifully controlled, randomized controlled trial, and there was no differences. But what I think the really important thing about that study was, was we did goal attainment scaling, and we individualized the interventions for each participant. And we also measured their goals as one of the outcomes. And while we didn't show any changes on the standardized outcome measures, there was really important and meaningful gains uh, related to the goal attainment scaling for patients. And so 92% of the goals that were made by participants, and there were 15 participants in that arm, were achieved at the expected level or higher than expected. And these were balance measures, walking around the block, you know, kind of really functional measures, but that were specific to each of the individuals. Right. So I think we have the potential to change it. I just think we need the right kinds of interventions and, and targeted. And the other thing I will say is that there's a group. So Liz Ulanowski has been doing some work on this and she's together the BFIT program for Huntington's disease. And so that I think is a really nice model for, and she's shown some nice changes in a community-based program.
0: Mm-hmm. So the negative trial thing is interesting because, you know, Sounds like you created a a nice study, but if if the outcomes aren't specific for this population and aren't capturing what you're trying to to address, then how could it be positive, right?
1: Um, I probably should have thought of that, but yes, I still was really
0: hopeful. Well, of course, but I, and you can only work with what you have, right? Like if the outcomes don't exist. Yeah, no,
1: exactly. And it was kind of right around that same time that we were doing an outcome measure study. We were trying to look at outcomes. And yeah, no, it's we we, we need this. And I think we're we're definitely on the right track with these balanced outcomes. And hopefully if I come back in a year or two, we we'll have some better answers. You know, maybe we'll have the balance measure for Huntington's disease. Uh, and you know it's important for Pharmacological interventions as well. You know the drug companies. It, it's something that they don't have a good measure of either. Of right. even some of the, the motor measures right now. What most of the companies are using is either some composite measure or uh, the total motor score on the UHDRS. Mm-hmm. And you know it's you know it definitely has issues because it's it's based on a sort of subjective rating right. and and. You know, we're looking to do more quantitative assessments across the board.
0: Now, is there a CPG for physical therapists treating people with Huntington's disease? That's a
1: very good question. We just had our CPG accepted for publication in neurology.
0: Wow. Congratulations. Thank
1: you. Yeah, we've been working on it for four years. (laughs) So I've been working with the group. I will give a shout out to the group. So Nora Fritz... Monica Bessa, Deb Kegelmeier, Ann Kloos, and Ash Rao. We have been working on this for a long time to try to collate the literature. We published a systematic review, and we had a very long process of trying to get it to a CPG. I think one of the big issues with the CPG in a relatively rare disease is that the research that the CPG is based on is not the level or the quantity, I should say, of research that you're going to expect in... Uh, stroke or brain injury or Parkinson's disease, right? It's just many fewer studies, but it doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile pulling together the available literature.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I kind of like that idea because the farther I get along in my career, the more I realize it's, you know, sometimes like a case study, there's like something to be learned there. It's, it's really, it's beneficial, even though it's not considered a sort of high level of data, I think that they're valuable. And so it's good that they have that kind of a system where you can utilize that type of information as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and yeah, you do have to be careful about, you know, you were still evaluating the evidence and talking about, you know, the, the grading of evidence and um, but I think it, it enables you to pull information from multiple sources because what we need is guidance, right? Therapists out there do need guidance that's succinct, that's easy to interpret. If I, have a, you know, I haven't seen a patient with Huntington's disease ever or once, what do I do? Okay, I've got a yeah. clinical practice guidelines. This is what I should do. This is what I probably could do. This is what I maybe shouldn't do. And it at least gives you, I think, a good starting point. So yeah. we're we're hopeful that they'll be well-utilized.
0: Yeah, well, we're excited. And once we have it, we'll add it to the uh, show note links.
1: Oh, that would be great.
0: So Lori, is there anything else you want to include or tell us about?
1: I guess one thing that I think about a lot in my couple of worlds that intersect is the concept of movement system diagnoses. So I'm on the one of the task forces for AMPT. And I I feel like the concept of movement system diagnoses really intersects well with the concept of working with people with rare diseases like Huntington's disease. As you sort of mentioned earlier, Right? you might not see a patient with Huntington's disease, but what we are all good at or what we all should be good at doing is analyzing movement, right? And looking at the understanding movement problems and trying to understand the underlying movement impairments. And I think getting away a little bit from the heavy focus on the medical diagnoses and more trying to understand what different patients might have in common from a movement system perspective is something that has really, I've been really thinking about with regards to HD and maybe as a way to help therapists, new grads or people who don't see a lot of Huntington's disease as a way for us to kind of be speaking the same language. Right. So like, Whether it's, you know, a coordination impairment or whether it's, you know, sort of, we talk about, um, you know, force modulation problems or even force production deficits, right? We could see the same kinds of problems in people with Huntington's disease as well as with other neurological conditions like Parkinson's disease. And in many ways, you know, I think the treatments could be very similar. Mm -hmm. So I'm appreciating that framework more and more.
0: Yeah. And and I think you're right. I think that, that one of the um, benefits of utilizing something like a movement system diagnosis in the long run will be for when we're seeing people with they're either diagnosed with a rare disease or like not diagnosed.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. And look, there's thousands of rare neurological diseases out there. Mm-hmm. And it's impossible for therapists to learn about even an infinitesimal amount of them. And so, you know, what I think we should be spending our time doing is becoming experts at movement analysis and having a better language to describe the movement impairments that are common across conditions. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a really important area for both physical therapy research and for, you know, the academy to be driving forward.
0: Yeah. And I think that we need to do more, a lot more in the way of outreach and education around this, but I'm glad that you bring it up because I I do think it's important. And I think something like HD is just a great example. Yeah. And if you have that framework going into it, then you know, I'm not going to worry. I'm going to watch how they move. I'm going to give them physical therapy diagnosis and, and go forward from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't mean that we are throwing out the medical diagnosis. It really helps to inform part of the picture in a really important way. You know, a big thing about Huntington's disease, which is really unique, is that it's a a genetic disease. It's autosomal dominant. So it's a family disease. And another really uh, unique thing about HD, which maybe we didn't touch upon, is that, you know, there's a genetic test for Huntington. So I could be seeing, and I do see individuals who, are in the pre-manifest or what we call prodromal stages of the disease, where they are in theory showing no clinical signs or symptoms of the disease. But we, again, know what's, what's coming down the road. And a part of what our interventions can be uniquely for that disease is knowing what that trajectory might look like and how can we have interventions that might be neuroprotective and that are preventative in nature. And I think that that's a a unique aspect of each day.
0: Right. Yeah, I agree. So Lori, we typically like to ask people about what they do when they're not doing their work, as you might be familiar with, if you've listened to any of our podcasts. I have. So what do you enjoy doing outside of work?
1: Well, outside of work, I have a husband and two teenage daughters. So they do keep me very busy. My Uh, One daughter's in college and the other one is home with me. And we also enjoy traveling a lot. So we really got the travel bug when we lived in the UK. So we try to take family trips whenever and wherever we can. And in doing that, a big part of what we like to do is ski. So we do a lot of skiing. So we go out to Utah, we go up to Vermont. So that's something that is a great family activity for us. And I love doing... Pilates, yoga, and walking around Central Park. That's probably one of my favorite activities, especially on a Saturday morning when it's really quiet in New York. To walk around the reservoir is just amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love being outside. And I feel like uh, when you're in Central Park, you don't feel like you're in New York City anymore.
1: No, you don't. You don't. And, And Columbia, which is, you know, technically up in Harlem is just an incredible location now. It's really been completely changed from 20 years ago. There's a, a lot happening. The Columbia campus is extended all the way up, uh, basically from here to, to 168th Street. So it's a it's a great, great place to live and work, for sure.
0: Yeah, great. All right, Lori, well, I'd like to thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks. It's been great to have you, and you already sort of offered to come back in a year or two and we'll probably take you up on it.
1: Well, thank you. This was really great. I really appreciate the invitation and yeah, it was great. It was a great conversation. So thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of 4D, Deep Dive into Degenerative Diseases. I'm Parm Padgett. And if you've learned from and enjoyed 4D, please share it with friends and colleagues. Also check the show notes or social media to see how you can provide feedback. We want to bring you good, applicable information, and your input will help. Special thanks to volunteers Maggie Abbott, Adriana Kari, and Lauren Roscoff. This episode has been edited by Sarah Crandall with music by Jimmy McKay. That's rough. Yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> it sounds bad as I say it, but it's so great. Yeah, look. If you've learned to ski in Vermont, then you can really ski anywhere.
0: My um, my favorite part of skiing is the pro the post ski snack.
1: I sneak in some work along the way.
0: Yeah, of course you do. <laughs>
1: I'm like, I really want to
0: do this I, podcast.
1: I'm dancing around right the back, and I'm like, am I seeing something really? Oh, no. awesome? yeah,
0: <laughs> no. Can you imagine if we did this whole thing and forgot to record? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Let's stop recording then.